This is the research behind musical abstracts. What is a musical abstract? Well, we challenged five researchers to work with songwriter Johnny Berliner and turn their research into song. For more, go to the What's On section of curiositycarnival.org. When we choose to read the news, we have to choose which news to use. And when we choose which blogs to read, there is a need to judge indeed. Which are doubtful, which more certain. That's because just any person has the power to get published, whether good or total rubbish. Is this a quirk of modern day? Resulting from our techie way? The answers are resounding. I'm Abigail Williams. I'm Professor of 18th Century Studies in the English Faculty at the University of Oxford. The research I'm doing at the moment is on 18th century literature, and I'm writing a book which is called Willful Misreading, which is about the act of interpretation, and particularly about misinterpretation in works from the 18th century. And what I'm really arguing in my research is that the ways in which satire worked, which is a really important form in this period, is by people deliberately reading things wrong, deliberately misinterpreting them, getting the wrong end of the stick and then running with that wrong idea as a way of making things more funny. And that seems really important as a way of understanding why people wrote what they did and why they liked what they did at this time. And the more work I've done on this, the more I have realised that some of the conditions that gave rise to this kind of writing and this interest in misinterpretation in the 18th century are also relevant to the 21st century. So just to explain a bit about that, the beginning of the 18th century sees a huge explosion of print, of printed materials, and a huge explosion of readers. So you've got lots more people reading lots more different kinds of things, and often not really knowing how to interpret them, and the writers who are addressing them not really knowing how to reach them or what their accepted norms are. And you've moved really from a world in which people are exchanging manuscripts, things written on paper by hand amongst a group of people that they know well and can, t- and can anticipate the responses of, to this rather anonymous set of people who whose responses can't be predicted. That seems to me really quite like the rise of digital culture and the internet in the 21st century, where you move into a world in which anyone can comment on anything they like, and that we often don't know who we're reading or what their intentions are or what their context is when we read something online, which creates an amazingly creative space for parody. So for pretty much anything that exists, there is a parodic form of it on the internet. And that was what it was like in the 18th century, that all the dominant political arguments or cultural arguments or big ideas, they all get parodied in print, often by authors who aren't known to their publics and who are writing for people who don't necessarily know whether it's a parody or whether it's straight. So there's an internet adage called Poe's Law. Poe's Law is the idea that whatever you say as a joke, ironically on the internet, there'll be somebody who takes it as serious. So for example, people often talk about particularly fundamentalist ideas or creationist ideas and the ways in which they are taken literally by people who want to believe in them, even when those sentiments might be made parodically. And that seems quite a lot like 18th century satire. So I'm interested in misinterpretation, the idea that getting things wrong is funny, and the idea that you just can't always know what someone meant by something or what the authority of a particular kind of information was. And the reason why you get that uncertainty is often to do with new forms of media, print media in the 18th century and digital media in the 21st century. 
I read the primary text and then I read as many of the responses as I can find. And I also look at parodies of things that don't really exist in straight form anymore, just as a way of trying to work out what kind of things were funny and where the limits of parody ended. And whether there were some things you couldn't make a joke about or some some things it was too tasteless to make a joke about. So it's about taking major canonical works, but taking the whole kind of penumbra of less familiar works, often anonymously published works, and looking at them and trying to piece back together again a picture of what the whole world of print culture looked like, not just the things that we're really familiar with now. One of the parallels that I am making between the 18th century and the 21st century is the idea of fake news, that a story which is made up can gain momentum and go into circulation without anyone fact-checking whether or not it's true, partly because they just want to believe in it. So one of the stories that is an example of fake news from the 18th century was a story about a woman called Mary Toft who claimed to give birth to live rabbits. There were loads and loads of pamphlets written about the miracle of this thing and the scientific marvel. And obviously it was something that she was staging with the help of a quack doctor. But people wanted to believe it. You know, they wanted to believe in this freakish spectacle and they didn't, didn't, it wasn't interrogated that rigorously until quite far down the line. So that seems an example of something which seems palpably ridiculous to us, as much fake news might nowadays, but which just does the rounds because it's so entertaining or shocking or represents something we want to be reading about. Now the story of Defoe, who wrote with wit and candour, well known for Flanders and Crusoe, but also propaganda. His pamphlet on the shortest way got the government quite vexed. They put him in the pillory, but he'd been taken So Daniel Defoe was a journalist. Well, he was a tradesman and a journalist, and he's writing in the right at the beginning of the 18th century. And he wanted to influence government policy on religious dissent, on particular forms of religious practice, and who could do what when. The government was trying to clamp down on religious dissenters. And he wrote this pamphlet, which he published anonymously, called The Shortest Way with the Dissenters. And basically, The Shortest Way with the Dissenters was that they should be, dissent should be banned and preachers should be executed. So he took an absolutely extreme hard line as a way of mocking the implicit severity of this new legislation. So he took it to its furthest extreme as a sort of thought experiment in saying this is actually where we will end up. But the trouble was that he mimicked so well the voice of an intolerant alt-right persecutionist that he ended up being taken for that. So people who wanted to, people who were sympathetic to that point of view, which we might compare with the alt-right, I guess, they went for it and supported it and endorsed it. And the people who he was trying to sympathise with, the dissenters and people sympathetic to dissent, just thought it was abhorrent. And because it was seen as seditious libel, and because the kind of ironic element of the pamphlet wasn't recognised, he was arrested and he was put in the pillory and people threw stones and rotten vegetables and dead kittens at him. Uh, And he had a huge fine and he was in Newgate Prison. So that's an example of the way in which You can say something and expect to have a particular kind of response, but it just gets totally misinterpreted. He says that he was really surprised that the government was so angry and really surprised that people took it as straight, as serious. But he also says he achieved achieved what he wanted to achieve in that it got a lot of attention and this issue became highlighted. And I suppose that's the thing with shock tactics. They're not always brilliant for the individual who says them or uses them, but sometimes they can have political effect that you want. 
Another of the case studies which I which plays a part in the song is the pamphlet which Jonathan Swift wrote called A Modest Proposal. So Jonathan Swift was the author of Gulliver's Travels and a satirist and a clergyman and a political writer. And he wrote a pamphlet which was about the size of the population and their poverty in Ireland and the fact that they were starving. And his what he does is to address that topic again by presenting, ironically, a really extreme response to that situation. So what he says is that if we really want to sort out the problems of hunger amongst the poor in Ireland, then we should just eat their babies. His argument is there's way too many of them, so young children are very tender in their flesh. You can stew them up or make a fricassee of them, and that will be tasty and nutritious, and at a single stroke, sort out the issues of population control and hunger within the Irish peasantry. People seem to have recognised that it was ironic. It was savage, but it was ironic. But he didn't suffer the same kind of political or legal retribution. He wasn't prosecuted for it. It just was clearly not going to be taken as serious. And it was in the middle of a whole load of big pamphlet warfare about these kinds of issues. I think it was just taken as a parody of extremism rather than extremism in its own right. I suppose one of the really obvious lessons to learn is that all this has happened before, that we wring our hands about the state of contemporary culture and the things which are happening. We've been here before and we learn to deal with it. And one of the things that seems to me significant is that people, there were all these difficulties in understanding how print worked and how writing worked and how reading worked at the beginning of the 18th century, because those things were new. And those things bedded down and settled down. And it became easier as a transaction between authors and readers and interpreters and the text that they're interpreting. All that stuff just got more smoothed out, not totally smoothed out, but they worked it out. And in the same way, I think we might feel really anxious about the ways in which the internet licenses particular forms of interpretation or writing. But presumably those things too will bed down and we will establish norms that enable us to deal better with the quantity of information from unknown sources that we encounter. What is good about working in this area is that I have all these students and you present them with these fusty old 18th century books that they don't really understand and they've got no way of working out how all these allegories work and how this very historically specific satire functions. And they tend to think, oh, it's my, you know, it's their fault because they are too distanced in time from it and that if they get it wrong, that's just because they don't have the tools with which to understand it. And I think it's just incredibly kind of refreshing to think people have always got things wrong, that there's a rich history of getting stuff wrong and making something creative out of getting stuff wrong, that the history of interpretation of studying literature and history isn't always about getting it right that getting things wrong can have unanticipated and quite glorious consequences sometimes. My research in this area is ongoing and every day I find new things and things that surprise me. I don't know what I'll find next and I don't entirely, I have a overall plan but I don't know what all of it is going to look like in detail. But the more I do, the more I realise there is to do. So the genre of the song that me and Johnny did together is called 18th century grime or Augustan grime. Augustan is a word often used to describe the early 18th century. And when you hear it, you can see it's made of two really, really different musical styles spliced together. So gesturing to the 18th century part of my research, it's got melodies from music by Bach. And then underlying that, you've got um, electronic beats from grime music, which are gesturing to the digital and the 21st century aspect 
of the way my research can be seen as comparable with what's happening now. And that seemed to us a really funny and engaging way of saying two things at the same time. choose to read the news, we have to choose which news to use. When we choose which blogs to read, there is a need to judge indeed. Which are doubtful, which more certain. That's because just any person has the power to get published, whether good or total rubbish. Is this a quirk of modern day? Resulting from our techie way? The answers a resounding no. It's not a new phenomenon. It happened long ago. There's so much misunderstanding, fake news spread globally How do you know what to think when the web's got no integrity? It's alright, hold tight, there's an end in sight And soon you'll see, you can understand misunderstanding with satire From the 18th century There was a lady, Mary Toft, who was in need of money She sold a lie convincingly by giving birth to bunnies The news was spread in Grub Street print, journalism at its worst Fake news is old news now, Mary got there first There's so much misunderstanding, fake news spread globally How do you know what to think when the web's got no integrity? It's alright, hold tight, there's an end in sight And soon you'll see, you can understand misunderstanding with satire From the 18th century Now the story of Defoe, who wrote with wit and candor well-known for Flanders and Crusoe, but also propaganda. His pamphlet on the shortest way got the government quite vexed. They put him in the pillory, but he'd been taken out of context. There's so much misunderstanding, fake news spread globally. How do you know what to think when the web's got no integrity? It's alright, hold tight, there's an end in sight. And soon you'll see, you can understand misunderstanding with satire from the 18th century. Even though Defoe had not been read as ironic, Swift's popular satire became somewhat iconic. He claimed that starving Irish folks should boil up their kid. Had deliberate misreading now become a thing? There's so much misunderstanding, fake news spread globally. How do you know what to think when the web's got no integrity? It's alright, hold tight, there's an end in sight. And soon you'll see, you can understand misunderstanding with satire from the 18th century. So ever since we learned to read, we've always got confused. Especially when new media appear to give us more to choose. So in these modern times, do we really need such new tricks? Or is the answer to the internet just old school hermeneutics? There's so much misunderstanding, fake news spread globally. How do you know what to think when the web's got no 